Um, tomorrow, but not in the first thing in the morning. Yeah, I think you were in touch over email yes. as well. Yes. Okay, a while ago. Yeah, no, no. Uh, yeah, no, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so first session, you're not there. Yes, because I'm, yeah, it's in the morning, so I can't be here, but then... All right, good afternoon, everyone. I think we'll get started so we can make the best use of our available time. Um, I'm Nicola Palmer, I'm a lecturer at King's College London and I'm on the advisory board of OTJR and it's been really fantastic to uh, be engaged in these discussions today. It's also a real privilege to have this panel here. I think that in the first session we really touched on journalists as victims or we raised the question around journalists as victims. In the last panel we certainly talked about the journalist as, as witness. And I think what, what this panel reminds us of at the start is journalist as perpetrator. And if we look at Rwanda, we see journalism at a time was used very strategically to actively divide and actively ferment um, politics along ethnic lines. And, and it was that particular seismic moment that actually led to the establishment of, of Foundation Hirondelle and the fantastic work that they've done in order to try to shift some of our, our ideas about how media can play a role during conflict, but also can play a role in the post-conflict society. But I think what this panel is going to remind us of is that even when it's doing that, it's doing that in very divided societies. Um, and so we're going to be talking about the role, of, the role of the media in divided societies, facilitators or spoilers of justice and accountability. So I'm going to introduce all the panelists. We'll then go into, they'll present for 15 minutes and then we'll, we'll go into Q&A and then hopefully have a significant amount of time for the, uh, for the breakout sessions. So first I have Nicole Strem Lau. She's the head of the Programming Comparative Media and Policy here at the Centre for Sociolegal Studies. Um, then I have Maria Ristic, who's joined us. She's the assistant editor at the Balkans Investigative Reportive Network. And Eugenio Gagliadoni, I hope I've got that close, who's a research fellow. He's at the Centre for Sociolegal Studies as well, um, and also a member of the Programme for Comparative Media Law and Policy. So really continuing to bring together academic analysis and on-the-ground reporting. So let me hand over first to Nicole. Mm, Thanks great. very much. Okay. Thank you, Nicola. So um, today I'm going to be speaking a little bit about uh, the case and examples from Somalia. And it's very difficult to refer to Somalia as a whole. Um, for instance, there's been a very strong transitional justice process in northern Somalia in the region of Somaliland. And there's been a very nascent, non-existent, essentially transitional justice process in the south and varying degrees in between in Puntland and other regions of Somalia. But today I'm going to largely speak about the south. Um, and I think, I hope my comments help to also frame some thinking around the potential of the role of media in future uh, possible trans transitional justice processes. Um, so the media has always had, as Nicola said in the introduction, has always had a very central, if overlooked, role in the conflict. And I think we tend to hear about the more extreme cases like Radio Milikolin in Rwanda, but the, the media legacy and the role of the media has any, the role of the media in a conflict has, any, has a very strong impact on any post-conflict or peace-building process. And so by discussing some examples from what I think is one of the most destructive, long-standing conflicts on the continent, I hope that I can highlight just three issues for us to think about today. So the first one is around the politics of transitions and how actors that might be running media outlets and running um, newspapers, radio stations, etc., during struggles, during the conflict, think about the role of media when they come to power and during... Um, a peace-building process. And this is often not through a more normative democratization or peace-building lens. Secondly, how media reflects and participates in what is often a very highly profitable war economy. And I think we need to reorient ourselves to think about the media as an actor in this war economy and what that means. And third, 
a little bit of discussion, and I think it's particularly suitable given the partners involved in this, about international efforts to shape the media. And here I think international efforts to shape the media seldom tend to focus on building on what is actually working and the, the logic of the media system and how things are actually functioning. And I think in their zeal to encourage best practices or particular ideas of what the role of the media should be, they might obscure local practices um, that could be that could serve as an effective foundation for a transition or even for melding media and transitional justice processes. So on the first point, looking at the role of the media in transitions. So there's been a long legacy, as many of you will probably know, there's been a long legacy of guerrilla fighters in Africa having radio stations in the bush during their conflict and during the war. I think if you look across the continent, you see many outlets, whether or not it's the government's Ministry of Information or state television or radio or private government-leading newspapers. Many of those individuals, many of the leaders in these media outlets have had key roles in the conflict. Um, and I think, for instance, you see this particularly in the trend in the transitions in the early 1990s, where many media reforms across the continent, after some of these insurgencies seized power in sometimes what is called a, a, a transition of democracy in the early 1990s, many of those leaders had been active in the insurgencies. And so here, for instance, in South Africa, you can think of Zuolaki Susulu, who was involved with Radio Freedom during the war, and he was also involved in a lot of the ANC's newspaper and media propaganda. And he was the son of the well-known liberation leader, Walter Susulu, but he was also the first head of the SABC, the South African Broadcasting Corporation. Um, further north, we see this in Ethiopia, for example, where Amara Aragawi, who ran the radio station for the TPLF, the Tigrayan People's Liberation Front, was appointed head of the Ethiopian news agency when the Ethiopian, um, when the EPRDF came to power during the transition. And then he also launched one of the most uh, largest well-known newspapers, The Reporter in Ethiopia. And in the case of Somalia, and specifically Somaliland, we see with the insurgency radio, Radio Helgen, which has been instrumental in the civil war in Somalia, uh, between Somaliland and the south, Radio Helgen directly transitioned to become the new state broadcaster, Radio Hargeisa. Um, and the, radio, radio, the head of Radio Helgen, um, who was running Radio Helgen during the struggle, became the first director. And so I think you see a similar trend across the continent where appointments to leading media positions um, from it were, were made from these transitions of guerrilla radio stations. So Rwanda, Zambia, um, Uganda, Namibia, for example. And so while these transitions all happened a while ago, I think their legacy has very much continued to inform the culture and politics of radio and media on the continent. And it also reminds us of the importance of not overlooking the role of leadership of who's running these stations. And media has, in some sense, become another way for continuing the struggle, for continuing a conflict. Um, I think South Central is a little bit different. South Central Somalia is a little bit different because the state has completely collapsed and the war is ongoing. And this leads me to the second point, which is the politics of an information-rich environment in a war economy. So media in Somalia has very much been central to the conflict. You have 30 radio stations that are broadcasting in Mogadishu. You have newspapers publishing in Somaliland. Satellite, radio, satellite television stations are beaming in from London into across the region. Um, it's... There's mobile money. Some of the most ambitious experiments with mobile money in the world are happening in Somali, in Somali, in the Somali territories. Some of the lowest mobile phone rates. So it's an extremely information-rich environment, and I think this is something that people oftentimes overlook or don't really necessarily recognize, because there's this tendency to assume in these kinds of environments that there's nothing there. And I've heard this a lot, you know, in Libya or in Tunisia after the state collapse. There's nothing there. Nothing functions. Um, but this is certainly not the case. Um, many of the radio stations in the Somali region have been established by warlords, or they were established by warlords. And I speak generally, and I apologize, because the situation changes and shifts so, so rapidly that it's hard to pinpoint a particular time. So I'm trying to offer you some sort of more general, um, general assessment of the situation. So the, the, the radios have often been times established by, for instance, Al-Shabaab, which is an extremist group, has its own radio station, the African Union, the UN, the government of Somalia, other 
actors and fighters that are trying to consolidate power around certain territories, one of the first things they do is establish a radio station, often with funding from diaspora communities. And there's underlying this is a need to try and understand the logic of the system. So this isn't a completely anarchic system, but it does function according to a certain logic. And um, for instance, just a few years ago, a couple of years ago, there were more than 20 journalists killed in one year. But new journalists keep emerging to take their place. So why is there this demand for people to become journalists? Why, if there's such a high probability that you'll be killed, why, why are people willing to pursue this? And so in this conflict context, I think you very much also need to look at incentives. So what are the incentives for practicing journalism? It doesn't make sense to view the media as a fourth estate that's trying to pursue some idealized notions of, of journalism. But rather, I think the media is very much interwoven with networks of power, networks of politics. And in some ways, it's like any other business in a war economy where it profits off of the conflict. So, for example, some research that I've been involved with in Somalia right now has suggested a range of motivations why people are becoming radio journalists. There's certainly a significant movement from journalism to politics. And I think we see this very much in South Somalia, where Ahmed Abdi Salam, for example, the former founder and director of Horn Afrique Radio, which is a well-known radio station, moved into a series of positions in the transitional federal government, including Minister of Information, Security Minister, and eventually Deputy Prime Minister. Dahir Gel, who had, was head of Radio Koran, was the Minister of Information, and also very active in the, as a leadership position in the Islamic Courts Union in 2006. And most recently, and I think perhaps most controversi controversially, Yusuf Garad Omar was the head of the BBC Somali service, and he left in 2012, and a week later was running for president in Mogadishu. So the majority of journalists are not paid, but have to extract their salaries through other alternative means, through paid news, for example, um, where politicians might give an interview and then pay to have it prior promoted as priority news on a radio station, or through Shura, where journalists might be paid to attend particular press conferences or even NGO development training conferences. Um, so a whole host of organizations are often paying journalists to attend their programs. And one, um, just to, to cite a quote from one director of a private radio station that we interviewed, said, quote, the editor of a private radio station explained how two journalists who went with him to report on, the, on, a, on a warlord ended up staying with them and joining them. Now if you see them, you would never believe they were journalists. Their culture changed. Now they cannot accept this meager income from journalism. I believed that what ruined them was the journalist ethics that they broke in the first place. Others have joined the warlords in the same way. They started by working with the warlord to submit his news, and after some time they became part of the militia. That's one of the reasons why they're killed. I've seen so many cases like this. And I think this leads me to my next point on the international efforts to shape the media environment for, for peace. I think there's a tendency for a lot of media development initiatives to be, um, thank you, yes, <laughs> to be donor-driven um, and often designed and implemented to, with the support of the international community. And the relationship has varying impacts in very different contexts. So on one level, these donor, um, donor programmings have been very important sources of income for stations. So the United Nations or the US Department of Defense, for example, um, or BBC Media Action might pay to have particular programs broadcast on stations. And in some cases, they're peace-building programs. Um, in others, it might be, for instance, to counter violent extremism or to promote a new constitution, as we've seen is very much the case in Somalia. And at least in the case of Somalia, these efforts aren't seen as neutral, objective journalism or journalism in the way that we might think of journalism, but it's deeply rooted in the actors that are actually commissioning this work. And so the UN's involvement, for example, in Somalia has been highly political and extremely polarizing. It's seen as interfering and favoring certain groups over others. So any effort to use the media for peace-building purposes or transitional justice initiatives in their case, they established a radio station, Radio Bar Kulan, to support the African Union troops. 
but it has to be seen through the perspectives, through the lens of those on the ground that might be receiving this information. And so even if the UN might be framing or uh, presenting the Constitution as a way of encouraging a transition or peace building processes, many Somalis have been deeply critical of this, and they certainly then um, they see the current focus of the constitution-making process, for example, on some of these peace radio stations, as divisive and foreign. And this then leads me to my very final brief point, which is the need to have a greater emphasis on building on what is working on the ground. So looking at how the system actually functions, what is the logic of it, and how it works during the conflict, and how this would affect any kinds of peace-building processes that you might have. And this, I think, is counter to what a lot of the international interventions, how they approach it, where they focus on what is not working. So, for instance, the efforts by the World Bank and the... And the, um, and the United Nations right now in preparing a media law and a communications law in Somalia um, have been very much focused on press freedom, on freedom of expression, on international best practices. And it's very difficult to get a discussion going on how media is actually regulated, how media is actually functioning in Somalia right now. Um, and to steer away from this sort of very much templates approach. And I think this is where actually the transitional justice community can really play a central role and really help steer this debate. Because um, I think transitional scholars excel at these kinds of approaches. And if you unpack the legal environment in Somalia, you can see a web of very different mechanisms for supporting the media and for regulating disputes. Um, you see the role of Sharia courts, for example. You see the role of hair law. You also, to some degree, do see the role of formal courts in places where they do operate. So hair law, which is customary law, for example, has been involved in regulating defamation cases in Somali poetry, which is an extremely important and influential mode of communication in the Somali region. And there have been more modern efforts of trying to apply hair law and customary law to actually regulating newspapers. And I can think of one example in Somali land where there was a case between Hatouf newspaper and the President Khan Dahir Riale's wife, um, where there was a, a major defamation case and it wasn't resolved in the courts, but it was resolved according <coughs> to hair law. Um, so incorporating these kinds of different authorities and looking at what the role of Sharia courts might be or customary authorities might be and how they relate to state legal institutions can be complicated. But I think in Somalia, or at least in the Somali territories, for example, to have an effective environment for media during transitional justice or any peace-building initiatives, um, you're going to have to try and build and look at what's working and build on how, how things are actually functioning. I think it's much more likely to have a more successful process of, of transitional justice and the role of media in supporting these processes if you take that approach. So, Excellent. Thank you. Thank you, Nicole. Fascinating, and to the minute. So. <laughs> <laughs> now to Maria Ristic. Uh, thank you. Um, I'm uh, Maria Ristic. Uh, I'm the assistant editor of Balkan Investigative Reporting Network. But I need to just briefly explain um, what uh, we are doing. Uh, I'm the editor of the program, which is called Balkan Transitional Justice, that is on an English web portal, Balkan Insights. Some of you may know. Some of you should Google and visit. Um, and um, we are like specially trained journalists from uh, six countries of former Yugoslavia, and we are. Uh, reporting only on post-war uh, issues. Uh, we are following war crime trials, victim rights, <coughs> refugees, and uh, in general everything that is related to reconciliation and transitional justice. Um, I will try to do 15 minutes lecture, but I'm not promising because I'm usually just asking questions and uh, answering them, so I'm really looking forward to, to the discussion. Uh, my panel will actually like briefly uh, look into the overview, overview of the media landscape in the Balkans during the war and after. So uh, some of you know, uh, some of you don't, but media during the 1990s war uh, in the former Yugoslavia played very important role. Uh, they were servants of the state, most of them, especially in Serbia and Croatia. 
Um, they did a lot on promoting uh, ethnic hatred among um, uh, different ethnic groups and uh, they did a lot of propaganda reporting. Some of that was included in the indictment against uh, Slobodan Milosevic, a president of Yugoslavia, who was at the trial in the, at the ICTY, but he died, so we actually never saw an indictment uh, in the cases against journalists for hate speech. Uh, Serbia had several initiatives to actually prosecute uh, journalists for hate speech during uh, war, but uh, to date uh, this never happened. And most of the journalists who were reporting uh, during that period from the war actually remained on the positions in the media now becoming, uh, becoming editors of the programs and actually decision makers, which severely reflected on the way how media now report on uh, these issues. So I will, I think the, 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 the level of propaganda stayed the same, it is just now the methods, how uh, they're uh, favoring one group and uh, actually uh, not reporting objectively uh, when uh, the other ethnicity is involved. Um, we at uh, Balkan Investigative Reporting did some research uh, like how media reported on several occasions and I will give you three brief examples. Um, they're all related to war crime trials. So first we followed um, the arrest of uh, Ratko Mladic a uh, Bosnian Serb uh, commander uh, who is now on trial for genocide and war crimes uh, in Bosnian war before the ICTY. So we actually uh, analyzed some um, arti articles of some 16 media outlets across the region, Bosnia, Croatia and uh, Serbia, and we actually came to the conclusion that all uh, of the media outlets, most of them, uh, are actually very uh, biased when it comes to the arrest of uh, Ratko Mladic. Um, we had Bosnia, who uh, is uh, ethnically divided between um, Bosniaks and uh, Bosnian Serbs, so uh, the media clearly reflected the division in the society. Um, media from um, Republika Srpska uh, were actually very cautious, uh, didn't go into the details about the indictment and the actual, uh, what actually happened in Srebrenica. Instead, uh, we had like several reports from uh, Mladic's hometown, uh, reports from the protest, but actually like in-depth reporting, why is he on trial, was actually uh, completely left out, almost left out. Uh, in Bosnia, uh, in uh, part of the federation where Bosniaks are majority, uh, actually uh, victims felt satisfied in a way, but wanted actually more. And uh, most of them, and the media reports reflected that, actually were commenting how this came late, uh, how many witnesses died, how there are many more crimes that he should be indicted for, etc. So uh, basically reflected the feeling among uh, Bosnia community. Um, Croatia, uh, because um, Mladic was during war active also during war in Croatia, which was briefly before the, the war in Bosnia. Uh, uh, and um, unfortunately, for various reasons, this part didn't actually became part of the indictment against Mladic. So Croatian media were actually like, um, uh, the, the main news why, why Mladic is not on trial for crimes in Croatia. So this was the main concern uh, among Croatian media. In Serbia, where Mladic was hiding for years, it was actually completely like schizophrenic situation because um, uh, in Serbia, you would never get, like, in mainstream media, actual uh, writing uh, and actual articles about what happened in, during war in uh, Srebrenica and what was the role of Serbia. This was all the time more or less, like, silenced. So uh, the media were actually, um, couldn't figure out what should they write. 
so they turned out to a completely TV show uh, things reporting. Like you had um, weird, like even from the serious uh, mainstream media, you had reporting what like what was uh, Mladi cheating for breakfast when he was in the custody? How did he look like? Did he get old? Uh, or whether he visited the grave of his daughter or not? Actually, no serious reporting on the indictment was present in most uh, of the outlets. And uh, this is basically like shows how 20 years after we still didn't move from that discourse of of the war uh, in the 1990s. Um, this also reflects to the other cases before the ICTY. Media are usually following uh, the beginning of the trial and the end, and uh, usually the verdicts get uh, the most attention, and it is always um, completely biased reporting, and I don't know if Nerma is here, but she can back me up on this. Um, <laughs> For example, the trial of um, Croatian General Gotovina, who was recently acquitted by the ICTY. Uh, in Croatian media, it was uh, presented as an example of justice uh, and um, encouragement of the ICTY to rule uh, actually how <coughs> on, on truth. And uh, in Serbia, this was perceived as the biggest injustice ever that uh, the judges were bought by different uh, secret services, groups, uh, powerful countries, and things like that. It was all, again, conspiracy against Serbs. And um, actually, both of uh, media in both countries failed to actually tackle the facts from the trial. So they didn't like actually deal with what was proved, what was not but uh, completely commenting on the outcome on the basis of the ethnicity they belong to. This, of course, also reflects on the, on the national level when it comes to, because in various countries of former Yugoslavia, we have uh, national courts who are prosecuting for war crime trials, and um, for all of them, uh, the mutual thing is there is no public interest to follow the trial at all. Um, media are usually only when there are big cases. Um, they are usually at the beginning of the trial and when the <coughs> verdict is uh, pronounced. Uh, so in the meantime, uh, they're simply not interested to, to uh, tackle this, uh, this issue. Uh, so what we get usually is uh, wrong reporting, like mix it, they mix facts, verdicts, indictments, because simply they're not familiar and they don't have an opportunity to like get information because they're not all the time at court. And uh, on the other side, there is no public perception because media are not following that, that that is actually happening. I know that OSCE did uh, a research uh, two years ago, uh, and for example, only like 5% of Serbs actually knew that there are war crime trials before uh, Serbian courts. Um, so um, that is uh, basically uh, the situation when it comes to, to trials. And the, the other problem uh, out of this is uh, that Victims are usually not heard. Um, we uh, did the research last year, like in how many articles victims are mentioned, for example, for one of the big trials in Belgrade for the crimes in Kosovo. And we actually had like one media outlet running the interview with the victim. Uh, none of the media outlets ever mentioned any victim from uh, that trial. So basically, um, it's either there is no interest or uh, it is ethnically driven bias uh, journalism, which has like various things, uh, I mean, background in the things what happened in the 90s and who are the people who are running the media. But I think that's like the other topic. And yeah, I'm close to finishing, right? Yeah. Good, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Excellent, thank you. Maria. Let me hand over to Eugenio. Yeah.
Well, I would have to start with a, with a quick preamble because uh, unfortunately I wasn't here earlier for the other panel, but uh, I was following it on Twitter, and so there was a very interesting debate there. Uh, some of the things that I'm going to say today are somehow confidential, so not the first part of, uh, of the presentation. I hope I can give some sound bites and you can tweet them. But uh, some others, when the graphs are going to pop out, uh, I have to ask you not to, to tweet them. And there is also a particular reason, even if... Uh, Today, this panel is about divided society. Just a few hours ago, the final results of the Ethiopian election, which we're going to talk about today, came out, uh, and the ruling party won 100% of the seat. So if you, if you use the hashtag Ethiopia, we risk that what you're talking about now is going to get into the debate about these uh, sur surprising for some, not very surprising for others results. So, but I will give you a sign that uh, I hope to be interested enough to get, to get a couple of drinks. <laughs> and, uh, so, and to get this stuff, the usually is control L, uh, but... Uh, there we go. Right, and um, this is a project that talks, uh, it's interesting how Nicola introduced uh, the, these panels, saying the, 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 previous, the first one was about journalists as victims, uh, the second about witness, and this one is journalists about perpetrators. What I'm going to talk about uh, is actually users as potential perpetrators, because we, when we talk about social media, of course journalists are a big part of social media, they know how to use social media, but it's the polarized crowd uh, that uh, gets attention, or might get attention. Um, this is a project that talks at the intersection of media, elections, and violence. There's an increasing literature about it. So, and uh, this literature, in most cases, has a shortcoming. Usually the violence comes first, and then the social science research comes next. So what the social science research has to do is sort of trace back uh, what were the causes of the violence, what led the to certain particular disruptions, in some cases evictions, in, in some cases killings. And there are a number of other projects, and this project, the one I talk about today, Mitchell Chal, actually, I didn't say that. It's an Amharic uh, um, word that mentioned, in a way, it mentioned tolerance. It means tolerance, but it's more like fitting in. You know, I fit in a very complex society, so I respect the others, uh, and I expect the others to respect, to respect me. And uh, unfortunately, it's a bit blurry, but uh, it's part of a series of projects that has started uh, becoming increasingly common and map, uh, have decided to, in, before a potentially tense event uh, occurs, uh, such as the elections in Kenya in 2013, in 2007-2008, election led uh, to systematic violence, uh, a group of entrepreneurs uh, started mapping debates uh, online uh, uh, trying to map trends and who was saying what, which were the groups that were the most targeted. This is a fantastic project. We are collaborating with, uh, with the Umadi project in Kenya, the extended to Nigeria and other places. Uh, there is one problem with projects like this one. It is uh, they risk uh, to criminalize uh, online debates or to securitize online debates. In the moment you just uh, focus on hate speech online in Kenya, and you can't really say how prevalent it is as compared to the speech in the overall Kenyan online space, uh, you can offer some bites uh, to journalists, to politicians, to those in power to say, well, you know, hate speech is going on and can become uh, a justification for uh, uh, censoring, uh, for putting people in jail and so forth. And in a country like Ethiopia, where the results are of these kinds of those of you who know the history of Ethiopia, is a country that's made many progress, uh, but freedom of expression, human rights, is not one of the spaces where Ethiopia excels uh, in the continent. So we tried to solve um, this problem in two ways. The first one is through sampling. And I think this is the first project of this kind uh, that managed to do what, what, what I'm going to tell you in a second. Um, we had an advantage. In Ethiopia, there are a number of languages that are spoken, and are spoken just in Ethiopia. Amharic, Tigrinya, Romefa. So it's quite easy to pick up those spaces where we know that uh, these are spaces where Ethiopians are targeted, or Ethiopians are part of the debate. You have to do something like that in the UK. As far as I know, I don't think it's possible. But maybe some of you have some ideas. And uh, so what we did, we managed to sample every Facebook space in Ethiopia that passed a certain threshold. So 100 followers, so is a space that has some kind of public dimension. And by doing so, and then I go to the second, the second bit, um, 
the first number, this is an old slide, the, one, well, the number of faithful spaces went up to something 1,300 eh? because we keep updating our database. But so what we do is that uh, we selectively, every day we have a team of eight quarters, uh, we pick up the statements on a random basis so that we can say this is actually what the debate in Ethiopia about ethnicity, politics, uh, religion, and another of uh, some issues uh, looks like. And then, once we've done that, and we do that on an everyday basis, uh, we can go, we can become more specific. We can target, and today, since you know, this is a big project and I don't have a lot of time, I'm going to offer you the example of one case study. So, what happens when we have a kind of a baseline, the kind of what the debate on online on Ethiopia looks like, uh, and when we can dig deeper into something that is of interest and potentially amplifies violence. The second one, Nicole sometimes makes fun of me because I think it's a bit uh, too broad, but we will, we will see what she says later on. But uh, we try to, 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 we work together. And uh, we try to, to, uh, um, to come up with, uh, with a framework that builds in different tradition. But the important thing here is it doesn't focus just on hate speech. So we focus on hate speech, but allows to map uh, and to sort of flag uh, uh, different kind of, uh, of, uh, of conversation. So some can be leading to hate speech, uh, and, uh, and here I don't want to spend too much time on these. Uh, we call it going against and going towards. Uh, I can you know, delve more into it during the question and answer, during the breakout session, but this is kind of tailored in the particular political history of Ethiopia. Ethiopia is a long history of guerrilla war, very rooted in Marxist-Leninism, and the idea is very much the one of the vanguard that connects the, with, uh, with the masses and completely bypass uh, other political elite. So there is a history of these engagements. So when we say going against, uh, it means this history of reciprocal, not just misunderstanding, but just bypassing each other. These are just the unconcilable uh, fractures, they will never be solved. This is what we mean with going against. When we say going towards, it's people that actually want to move beyond the fractures. They say, fine, this is the setup of the country, this is ethnic federalism, this is, we want to speak, uh, as, because we're users, we're not politicians, we're people who have, uh, who have different types of constituency. Just to give you, I know the time is short, but just to give an example, I, I'm not going to go to both of them, just the first one. Something that is going against, uh, I want to uh, focus on human hyena, you are a thief. So there is no way that I'm trying to engage with someone. I just want to insult someone. I want to just say that people are taking away from me what I have. The second one is, 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 still, is still an Oromo speaking with, uh, this case is probably a Tigrayan, so someone in, in the highlands. The same kind of fault lines between people from the south and people of the north is articulated in a different way. We say, my Oromo friends, you know, we know we have grievances, we know that, but some of these people have also lost their life, we have fought with us, uh, so let's try to... And, and this is an example of what we mean when we say going against. Uh, this is a complicated thing, just to say, it's not that what we do is just going against and going to words. Uh, going against opens up a, a kind of a semantic space where asking certain question, is this targeting an ethnic group or a political group, uh, a religious group, there is a call to violence, uh, we can, we can divide the deep space into from offensive speech, which is the less dangerous, to hate speech, uh, to dangerous speech with the uh, limited possibility of violence. A lot of, uh, I shouldn't say that, but a lot of loaded speech is against the government. This is a government that has six million uh, members have control of the security apparatus and so forth, so it's difficult to get to action when that's the target, but in other cases it can be vulnerable groups, so in that case uh, we can do that. So, I want to do in the, I guess, five or six minutes that I left, uh, I want to offer an example to a case study. This is a picture of the Battle of Adwa. The Battle of Adwa and, uh, was an historic moment in the history of Ethiopia, but it's the history of the continent. Uh, is when, in 1896, uh, the Ethiopian army defeated the Italians. So it was the only time that uh, uh, um, an African army managed to uh, defeat uh, a colonial army. And so it was a foundational moment in the history of Ethiopia. People who don't focus on Ethiopia per se can see these uh, as, uh, as a liberation by uh, an African nation uh, against the colonialists. But for people who work, I'm not going to read through this. It's just, uh, if you can glimpse through it, just to give an example, there are many other divides that these particular battles uh, reflects on uh, and uh, in the case of Ethiopia. And there are two, and then I will go to the data, I can sort of 
Stumpy the tweeting. I don't, I don't see a lot of thumbs, mm -hmm. so probably it's okay. But uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, so it's it it develops, and this was also this this is not just online, but this was also reproduced in, uh, online. Um, two different fractures. Uh, one is between the people in the north and Menelik, the person who who uh, won uh, the, the emperor who wanted Adwa was. Um, uh, was from Shoah, was from the north, from the Abyssinian Empire, was seen like as a unifier. The people from the south that were actually saying, and I will show some example, well, actually, this is, was not the war of one, of, of liberation, of resistance of an African army against the colonial. These were just two forms of colonialism. Menelik was a colonialist, and Menelik colonized, colonized the south of Ethiopia. And the interesting thing here, not this, it is well known, but is how it plays, this is in the right hand side, how it plays. Uh, into the history of the opposition in Ethiopia. For those who don't know Ethiopia very well, especially with 100% of the votes going to the, to the ruling party, the idea is uh, the opposition is united, it's one against this monolith uh, of, uh, but actually even the opposition is divided along these lines. There is an opposition which is more urban, more um, tied to the international community, to, in, to, to individual rights and these kind of struggles, and there is one from the south uh, that uh, plays into this idea of uh, we, uh, we have been suppressed, we haven't been allowed to, to, to define our idea of the nation state. And then there is a second one, and then I move to the, to the, to, to the details, and, uh, which is Amaris versus Tigrayans. Again, for some, uh, Menelik was a liberator, for others he was just doing its interest and playing his own, his own, his own ethnic uh, belonging against others. And the other one was between the Tigrayans, the, the, the core of the, of, uh, of the ruling uh, uh, coalition right now, uh, the, against the Eritreans. I think the Eritreans were already dominated by the Italian, there were a number of Eritreans who were fighting with the Italians against this. And here I get to the, to the, to the well, I was hoping to, and uh, I was hoping to get into the data, which I guess I'm not going to show very well. Okay, let me try to see what I can do with it. So what I was hoping to show you was uh, that this was the subsample. So it's just around 100 statements that we picked up uh, about Hadwa. And this was the general sample. So these are thousands of statements that are picked up about whatever that's been discussed uh, in the case of Ethiopia. And uh, it was showing that uh, it's much more polarizing. There's so much more debate uh, on... Uh, on uh, on uh, on Adwa that uh, that uh, that in but and also and this becomes more interesting uh, it it downplays political distinction and uh, and it plays up uh, ethnic belonging in this country like Ethiopia where politics and ethnicity are very tied uh, this is an interesting finding so um, again this was sort of say was supposed to say the same thing. Uh, and this is just to provide you some, you know, beyond the numbers, uh, some, some clear examples and saying uh, about these kind of, uh, these kind of fractures. I don't, I don't have a lot of time, uh, but I want to pick up uh, one at least, which is the one, to talk about the same things, but it's the one on the right. Uh, this is saying, uh, this is uh, one, uh, uh, one users that uh, goes back uh, to this distinction between was Menelik uh, a, a savior or was the colonizer. And uh, he picks up these, uh, these statements from uh, Robert Skinner, who was uh, a diplomat, a US diplomat, who visited uh, Ethiopia in 1903, and uh, reported the words of a Haitian journalist, who was Benito Sylvain, who was seen as one of the, one of the, the funder of, uh, of Pan-Africanism, where Menelik says, uh, to, uh, back to Benito Sylvain's uh, which asked for support to the cause of liberation of the black in the United States and in France, uh, said the Negro should be uplifted. I applaud your theory and wish you the greatest possible success, uh, but you see, I'm not a Negro, I'm a Caucasian. And this is used in this kind of debate and say, Menelik was a racist. Menelik was not uh, liberating Africa for Africans. Menelik was just uh, playing his own kind of ethnic politics. And then you can imagine how these uh, can play out in the comments and, and estimate it. So, um, and this, is, this is, speaks by itself. This is the second type of divide. This is the Tigrayan versus the Eritrean, saying, look on the other side of the river. This is a river that, that, that divides Ethiopia and Eritrea, how the Italians were treated by the Eritreans. This is an Italian gentleman that is carried uh, by, and, and again, these displays uh, certain kinds of divides. 
I don't have much time to go into this, but the message that I'm trying to convey with these data that didn't show up, I was hoping could show up, but is uh, um, this is a project that it's um, bigger than this, uh, this case study, but it touches on the importance of providing evidence uh, about these broad debates. So far, NAC also picked it up and others probably before, the kind of debate is about freedom of expression against censorship, securitization with security to provide development and so forth. And it's very much a divide between NGOs, international organization, and governments that are committed to de development, uh, but uh, have to struggle with the tensions that these development uh, might bring, uh, and, uh, and opening up of the media as well. Project like these sort of offer empirical evidence that is needed to make these debates more nuanced. And saying, in the moment in which tensions appears, uh, also counter-narratives appear. And these counter-narratives uh, allow to say, well, the government is targeted, but the government is also engaged at the same time. There are a lot of people who are trying to speak with this government. Of course, there are people who are trying to attack it and so forth. So this is just uh, to, 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 to offer an example of the possibilities that are open up to sort of uh, break into this debate that is sort of it's, it's been stuck for a while and, uh, and uh, giving you energy. So, Great. Thank you. Thanks so much, Eugenio, and also for your patience in, in managing no, the no, no. dangers of epileptic fits while... <laughs> Maybe it's the Ethiopian that I was trying to get into. It. I don't think it's so, so like, groundbreaking. Um, I think we might switch that off. Um, right. <laughs> Great, so I think three, three presentations that, that tied together extreme, extremely well. And what struck me was first sort of bridging them was, was the importance of understanding the existing media landscape and understanding it in a really nuanced and detailed fashion. And, and then the second question that arises from that is in mapping it, recognizing the ongoing, the continue, as Nicole said, the continuing means of struggle, the use of media as a continuing means of struggle, or as Maria noted, the continued divisions within that media. Um, but then I thought, also about then, well, what does that mean for how we regulate it? Um, and I think Eugenio and, Eugenio and Nicole both touched on that. So what does that mean in terms of should we regulate it? How, does it, how is it actually getting regulated? And what are, the, what are the costs when we start to look at that regulation and, who, and who's doing it? So with that in mind, maybe we can open it up for, for general discussion. Yes, a question. I'll, I'm going to gather three or four questions, if that's sure. all right with the panel. Good. Yeah. yeah. The question we need to Maria. I mean, the comment you made about I think only 5% of people mm -hmm. were aware of the local trials. And it links to the point <coughs> that we discussed last week at a similar conference whereby they spoke to a local person that, did you know your, the uh, perpetrators, alleged perpetrators, were at the ICC? She said, I'm not interested. I just want compensation to carry on with my life. Do you think it's a problem with the Justice Project? that justice can mean different things to different people, and some people just aren't interested in it. Therefore, do we have to educate them that justice is the worthwhile project, or do we look at these alternate means, and then perhaps what role could the media play in educating people of the, sort of the, uh, the worthwhileness of these projects? Great. Thanks, Matt. I'll, I'll gather a few at the back. Yeah. If you could just introduce yourself if you haven't asked a question yet. Yep. Um, I think it was a really wonderful um, and detailed sort of survey of the media landscape, particularly looking at the the spectrum of reality of and how this regulatory the kind of crime of the media in the 90s and the media Recognizing or not recognizing, say like 
the 2010 resolution in Serbia, where they said that they did not use the word genocide, how that then plays into the language that journalists can use or not use. Because I, I, I agree with this assessment, people are writing this book and talking about how this perpetrated. But it's also a case of the language kind of being inherited from the official channel. And so when you have a government that will not use the word genocide, then you know what are the national journalists to do in that scenario to have that kind of impact on the debate? And I, as kind of related to that, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the relationship between the international media and the national media and how that plays out in terms of terminology. Um, so I know I found not working on writing a little for the international media about the former Yugoslavia. If you try to move beyond the kind of, so for instance, Bosnia, like the same kind of rigid compulsory ethnic identification of data in Bosnia, where like everyone is labeled on their identity lines, the editors would just, you know, because for an international audience, they're like, they will change the word saying, say, Bosnian when you're trying to convey civic identity back to, but are they Bosniak or are they Bosnian Serb? Like, and so it sort of reiterates the, the logic of the uh, kind of ethno-nationalist setup. And I was wondering whether that also has a kind of dynamic between the, the way the international media often do, and mishandles the, and, and essentializes the former Yugoslavia and the, the way that the national media talks about itself and the language that it uses. Okay, so, great, thanks. Yeah, um, Phil Clark from SOAS, thanks for the really fantastic panel. I've got a question for Nicole and a question for Eugenia. Um, Nicole, you talked a lot about uh, the leadership of media um, in Somaliland today and how much that derives from the <coughs> background. And I'm wondering, how does this influence the way that the population engages with media? Do people um, distrust media outlets because they derive so heavily from the conflict background? Do they align themselves with particular media outlets and treat others with some sense of suspicion? Um, is all media seen as some form of propaganda that simply flows out of the conflict? I just wonder if you could say a little bit more about how the users of media engage with such a conflict-derived um, media landscape. So just something on that would, would be really interesting. Um, Eugenia, I'm wondering where um, diaspora politics fits into the picture you're looking at, and clearly both Somalia and Ethiopia in the sort of African politics literature always get talked about as uh, societies in which politics are so heavily framed by diaspora involvement, and I guess there's also a debate about the role of social media and, and, and other forms of media in connecting the diaspora to, to domestic politics. So wh where does the diaspora fit into the, this picture that you're giving us here? It, is it um, a magnifying tool? Is it perhaps exacerbating certain forms of incendiary discourse? Is it dampening those tendencies? Um, is, it, is it neutral? Just kind of wonder where yeah. it fits in. And also, I guess, um, part of that too also derives from a sort of post-conflict or post-guerrilla uh, history, again, in which the diaspora played such a key role in fueling particular um, armed movements. Um, and, and so you have a, a population that is heavily attuned to attitudes of the diaspora um, and tends to you know, sometimes take some of that on board. So just wonder where the diaspora contributes into this picture. Thanks. Um, Brian. Yeah, thanks. Um, Brian e. James, University of Basel, Answers Peace. Thanks also for a really fantastic panel. Um, I actually wanted to pick up on something that was said in the first uh, panel discussion today and kind of bring it into this discussion because it really struck a chord with me, which was about local level media as building a form of citizenship. And I think in all the presentations we kind of touched upon this uh, um, ambivalent role that media plays in terms of on the one hand there's a general kind of acknowledgement in the discussions that media will inevitably reflect and be man a manifestation of certain like divisions and inequalities and in that sense it's not at all surprising in the Balkans for example you have like ethnically um, um, divided kind of media but on the other hand there's a sense at which we might want or expect it to be more than that and kind of what for example in the media the role that can play in that and I wondered if any of you or none of you would be interested to speak very directly to the point of, of media and people working within media or users of, of different forms of media as, as part of having responsibility to build a new form of social contract, in the, particularly in these divided sorts of mm -hmm. societies. What might the limits of that be? Is it even reasonable to connect those different things together? Great, thanks. Maria? So, um, first question. I think uh, when it comes to the trials and actually 
people knowing that there are trials uh, ongoing, uh, the main problem is that even though the trials are happening within the institutions, the state institution itself are keeping that as a secret. I mean, that is the case in the Balkans. Um, it is not supported by the state, by the uh, educational system, by any form of uh, public acting. The trials are uh, technically happening uh, in the back and um, there is no space for um, the debate about the trials. At the beginning, when the, in, in case of Serbia, uh, when the special chamber for war crimes was actually established, uh, the more people knew about the trials simply because state was behind that. And state was behind that only because we were blackmailed, or it was a condition, whatever you want to word it, uh, for the EU. So um, the state actually had to show the support to the process of reconciliation. After the international impact on the Balkans shift to the other things, uh, removing the focus from war crimes to economy or negotiations for the Bosnia it was like European Court of Human Rights, for Serbia it was Serbia and Kosovo, so simply the governments uh, didn't have in any way um, any role in supporting this to actually happen. So uh, in that sense, uh, I think the main issue would be, because we have civil society much involved in this, but it's not enough, like you can do advocacy, but to whom? I mean, you're not re if you're not reaching to the state level, to the institution, Ministry of Justice, or anyone else, or to the schools, I think the advocacy leaves you to the like people who are already involved in the, in the process of transitional justice. So most of the people are actually, uh, in a way, left out, not voluntarily, but simply because the system is made like that. Um, and on, on uh, the other question, I think it's great that you actually mentioned Srebrenica because I don't know how many of you uh, follow now the situation in the Balkans, but there is like complete hysteria, I can say, about the uh, upcoming uh, 20th anniversary uh, in Srebrenica. Uh, and um, in Serbia, it was a never a discourse that that was a genocide ever, like, see, even though the democratic changes took place, uh, the democratic government actually never acknowledged that it was a genocide. We had a declaration in the parliament saying that this was an awful crime, but we didn't want uh, to mention that it was uh, a genocide. I mean, it's all about the words, but in, in, it is actually, like, extremely important. And this discourse remained uh, for the past 10 years, for sure. And now uh, it escalated to the point that the journalists were, because there is a new resolution that UK is proposing to be adopted in the UN. So Serbian media are now uh, reporting, for example, how many times there is a genocide word mentioned in the resolution itself. So this is the debate that is ongoing. It is perceived as an attack on Serbia, simply because we don't recognize the word genocide. It's not like what happened, like people are not going, I mean, some of them are questioning the numbers and things like that, but it is how you say it. I mean, that's the way of debate. And I think that is the responsibility of media because that goes beyond the fact, like they're not going to the objective reporting, like researching what happened, what are the verdicts and things like that. They're simply, reproducing the narrative of the politicians, so, yeah. Virginia. Right, I, I'm gonna start with um, Phil's question, and, uh, and here is where the, the comparative aspect will become incredibly interesting. Uh, we, we have been looking at, obviously, diaspora politics in Ethiopia, the first website uh, where the first blogs were created uh, by, uh, by people living in the diaspora. But one thing that we found uh, in the project that we weren't expecting, and I think it's becoming increasingly interesting, we will focus on, uh, is that by analyzing conversation on Facebook, uh, we have been able also, to a limited extent, but to a good enough extent, uh, to pick up where people are posting from. 
So we are, we are developing this kind of tapestry of different online communities. So it's not just what we will be able to say at the end, uh, and we didn't see it at the beginning, but it's probably going to become one of the most interesting contributions, contribution, is uh, the, the quality of debates in different types of diaspora. So um, what we are finding so far is 22% of the posts uh, are from the diaspora. So that's where I'm saying the comparative angle will be very interesting. To me, it seems a lot. But uh, I would be interested to hear in Rwanda what it is. It's probably a bit lower, but uh, in Somalia it's probably going to be higher. And uh, it's, yeah. if, if research like this could spread to other countries, yeah. that would become really interesting to really understand what the diaspora does. And then within these uh, 22%, we started say, seeing smaller communities. The US is between 50 and 40%. It depends on the month. It is not surprising. But then we also started seeing, uh, seeing South Africa and Kuwait. Kuwait was a row about uh, Ethiopian maids that were mistreated. Kuwait jumped in, uh, immediately. And South Africa, there was all this xenophobic violence. Uh, and over time, we'll be able to say, well, the South African Ethiopian community is more engaging, it's more willing to speak across mm -hmm. divides, while the one in Kuwait uh, is less educated. So, and this would be incredibly interesting. And, mm -hmm. and we, we're seeing it now. We didn't see it when, when we started the project. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and um, about, I like the idea of, uh, this is the question about rewriting the social contract, uh, the media and the local media trying to do that. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, uh, and that's one of the things that happened in Ethiopia a year ago, where there was, uh, and it was happening through social media. It was a group uh, of uh, very young uh, blogger, activist, uh, and uh, using social media to really rewrite the relationship between the media and the state. Uh, it has been very adversarial also because of the diaspora. The diaspora never accepted uh, the state as legitimate. Uh, and these people were saying, well, the framework in which the debates are happening, this idea of ethnic fairness, is legitimate. And actually, they were asking those in power to respect the Constitution. That was one of the main aspects. And for me, it is the right in the social contract. When a group of young bloggers says, respect the Constitution, their own politicians, they're doing something new. The problem is, these very guys went to jail, and they were accused of terrorism. And, uh, and this is, you know, I don't want to take a lot of time, but uh, when you talk with the with the diaspora Ethiopians in the UK, for example, in other places, and are very supportive of the government, they also see these uh, as a big mistake. You know, these guys shouldn't have to be taken to jail. They were really trying to do something new. And, and this also comes to regulation, what you asked at the beginning. Uh, Projects like these try to actually show with empirical evidence uh, that we can break beyond, and I said at the end of my, of my, of my, uh, of my talk, uh, uh, this, this polarization between freedom of expression mm -hmm. or not, and showing what actually happens. So uh, when what we do, and then when I was like a bit like on Twitter about it, uh, we do share these results uh, in forum, in, in worship, uh, where we invite bloggers, the Ethiopian government, the Ethiopian oppositions, and the academia, and we try to, to, to use this data to have a debate on different grounds. And then there's a more interesting aspect of it. It's not just research that I do and then will end up in a paper, but gets shared with these actors. Uh, and the results are quite interesting sometimes. But uh, that's, we try to, to shape regulation in a different direction using different tools. Fantastic. Great. Thanks, mm -hmm. Nicole? Sure. Just briefly on this question of um, how users engage with these different media outlets. You refer to it as propaganda. I think that in and of itself can sort of be a put of a polarizing word. But um, I think it really, really depends on the context. And I think this is one of the really interesting puzzles, at least that I'm fascinated by, because you see like Uganda, for example, where the NRM, the National Resistance Movement, set up the daily... Um, the New Vision newspaper, which is a government newspaper that's extraordinarily popular. People buy it and it's well read and it was used in a way when they came to power as a way of explaining their new, if you want to call it even social contract, to the people, to Ugandans, what was new about the about the about the um, NRA, the NRM. And I think we also see something similar in Uganda where there's the Daily Graphic, which is also a government newspaper Ghana. that's in Ghana, sorry, which has been extraordinarily popular. Um, and then I think, for instance, comparing that with the case of Ethiopia, where I would say the government news, the government media is more propaganda, and it's much more, it's a much more polarized environment. And here I think it's not just the media itself; it's the media ecology, and it's also the other political authorities that the media interacts with. So certainly in the case of Uganda, I think Museveni. 
Evany has been extraordinarily skillful in creating this environment. So what you had was this government propaganda, government newspaper, and then you had the Monitor newspaper, which Museveni framed as the opposition newspaper, but it was never really an opposition newspaper. It never challenged the fundamentals of the Ugandan state like you had in Ethiopia or in many other post-conflict countries. So Museveni had also practiced policies of engagement. Um, and I think the media, using the media, was very much part of his politics of engagement that other countries haven't had. So it really depends. In general, I think users are quite savvy. They, in Somalia, people certainly know who's funding what stations and why they were established. Um, so it's, 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 yeah, it's quite complicated, I guess. <laughs> I don't have an easy answer. <laughs> I, I don't think any of us do, which, which, which is why we continue to talk about it. <laughs> um, but now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop there and we're going to go to the breakout sessions um, and pick up on themes across the last session and this one um, and working through some of the questions that, that, um, that will be facilitated. So I think we're all staying in the same rooms that we were in. Um, so we'll, we'll move across to that and we'll be finishing up at 7 o'clock. So, and just to thank all our speakers one last time. Thank you. Do you know what we're supposed to do? Oh yeah, because we were in here before, so we don't know which rooms or... So I think we can Okay. 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 Okay.